Beth is going to come and going to read to us from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and also from Ephesians chapter 4. Tazina's third first reading is from Ecclesiastes and reading chapter 1. The Word of God. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labour at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. <coughs> we then turn to Ephesians chapter 4, reading verses 17 to 24. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen. And we give thanks to God for these readings from his word. Heavenly Father, it is a sincere prayer that... You know, all that we do in our work and in our play, in our busyness and in our leisure, we would indeed be seeking your kingdom first of all, your kingdom and your righteousness. 
For this is true wisdom, eternal, enduring wisdom. And this we pray in our Saviour's holy name. Amen. Well, as I said, if you get the emails for the Church Hope family, then some bold statements, some might even call them proverbs, were sent out to you for you to contemplate. Life is meaningless. You're born, and then before you know it, you're dead. Ignorance is bliss. Only fools are happy. We're all animals. The same fate awaits a man as a dog. Better never to have been born. Hard work. What a waste of time. Spend, 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 because if you don't, it'll just burn a hole in your pocket. Better to be a pessimist, because then you'll never be disappointed. Take what you can out of life. So what do you think? Do you agree? Or do you disagree? The world at the start of 2024 is more uncertain more precarious probably than any time since the end of the Cold War. Some even say since the end of the Second World War. I heard a phrase recently, the state of the world today is being described as poly, there's a polycrisis. There is a polycrisis in the world today. We're living through a time of austerity. Young couples can barely afford to rent, never mind buy property of their own. The demand for food banks has never been higher, even amongst people who are in employment. So what should we do? Look after number one. That's what we're being told. Get what you can out of life. Grab while you can, because if you don't, somebody else will. So many people think like that. The people behind you in the supermarket queue. Your colleagues at work. The mums and dads who stand with you at the school gate. That is how people think today. But what about us? How comfortable do you feel with those gritty so-called proverbs? Well, here's a really scary thing about them. You will find them all in the Bible. You'll find them all in the Bible. I've given them a modern lick of paint. But these are ideas which you will find in the Bible. Because they come from this one book, the book of Ecclesiastes. Someone has described Ecclesiastes as the joker in the pack. Another commentator writes this. The writer of Ecclesiastes is a master wit of pity sayings. He takes us on the roller coaster ride of emotions. He communicates with intriguing anecdotes, beautiful poetry, and dogmatic conclusions. He compels us to unavoidable conclusions by rigorous argument. The book of Ecclesiastes has always been a controversial book. The Jews themselves had debates among themselves as to whether it even should be in their scriptures. Because so much of what it says contradicts what's said elsewhere in the Bible. So take, for example, what it says about work. So we just read there in chapter 1, verse 3, what does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Now contrast that with what the book of Proverbs says about work and industry. He who works his land will have abundant food, but he who chases fantasies lacks judgment. And of course, in the book of Proverbs, we must not forget the ant. 
Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a bandit. And scarcity like an armed man. But Ecclesiastes says, Well, okay, the early bird may get the worm. But the bird that has the long lie might enjoy that even more. Take the approach to wisdom. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 18. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Chapter 7 verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. At one time we're even told that it is a waste of time trying to discover wisdom. You just can't find wisdom. Whatever wisdom may, whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and more profound. Who can discover it? Now contrast that with the hymns to wisdom that you find in the book of Proverbs. Get wisdom, get understanding, do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. So you can see there's quite a clash between Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. And if we know our Bibles well, we know that the teaching of Proverbs tends to be four square with the rest of the Bible. So what's going on in this little maverick book? Let's start at the beginning. In verse 1, we're told that we are about to read the words of the teacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Now the word, the Hebrew word for teacher is koholet, and that literally means one who assembles, one who gathers, someone around whom others gather, a teacher. A preacher around whom students or disciples will gather. And that reference there to the son of David and king in Jerusalem has led to the traditional view that King Solomon is this teacher. Because Solomon, of course, is associated with wisdom. And later on in chapter 2, we'll read of his experiments with grand projects, indulging in the most sensual pleasures imaginable. And these do kind of square up with what we know about the wealth and opulence of Solomon. That said, there are good reasons for being sceptical ourselves about who this arch-sceptic really is. Now, for a start, the other two books that are associated with Solomon, Proverbs and the Song of Songs, they specifically state that they are by Solomon. Ecclesiastes doesn't do that. And as we've seen already, there are quite a number of clashes between what a preacher seems to think and what Solomon teaches in the book of Proverbs. I think the best explanation is that our teacher, Koholet, is using a literary device to catch our attention. He knows that we associate wisdom with Solomon, and therefore by vaguely hinting but never stating outright that Solomon has got something to do with this book, he'll get our attention. The way I think about it is that this teacher is like, is like a professor of philosophy in one of our universities. And the lecture that he always gives to his first year students on their first day of the course is this. Assume nothing. Test everything. 
Our teacher wants his students to think for themselves. He doesn't want them to regurgitate the traditional wisdom handed down from Solomon. He wants them to question, to probe, to prod. In the end, we'll find that his conclusions are actually perfectly consistent with the rest of Scripture. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, he says to his class. He wants his young pupils to come to that conclusion themselves. He wants them to discover, well, as he says in chapter 3, verse 14, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. That's what he wants his pupils to discover. But he wants them to discover it for themselves. So friends, as we begin to listen to this ancient teacher, I warn you, there's a bumpy ride ahead. Because this is not a collection of platitudes or cliches. In fact, it's a rather messy book. There's no apparent logic to its structure. It's repetitive. It is even contradictory in places. It's a messy book. But then again, life is messy. The world is messy. The first startling statement that confronts us, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. That is a saying that comes up about 37 times or so. If you're more familiar with the authorised version, the old translation, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Modern translators, they vie with one another to try and capture in English the force of what the teacher is trying to tell us. And they come up with words like absurd. Absurd, it's all absurd. Or, or mystery, it's all a mystery. Uh, vain, vanity. Um, the Hebrew word there is hevel. And, and it, its basic meaning is just breath. Vapor. If you're familiar with Eugene Peterson and his paraphrase, The Message, he translates it as smoke. Smoke, nothing but smoke. There's nothing to anything, it's all smoke. And so the idea is not so much that life is meaningless. Actually, our professor will tell us in chapter 3 that God has made everything beautiful in its time. So I'm actually taking issue with our new international version and the translators. I, I, I don't think it's about meaninglessness. It, it's about life being fleeting. A breath. Insubstantial. Ephemeral. In Psalm 39 verse 5, the psalmist uses the same word. Psalm 39 verse 5. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a hevel, he says, a breath. <sighs> Snapping of the fingers, blinking of the eye. You're here today, you're going tomorrow. Ian Proven is an Old Testament scholar. He's a Scotsman now based in Vancouver. And I prefer his translation. The merest of breaths, says Koholit. The merest of breaths. Everything is a breath. And sometimes that observation is accompanied by that colourful picture that everything is a chasing after the wind. Well, what could better illustrate the concept of futility than to try and capture the wind? The world is an absurd, crazy, baffling place. You know Churchill's phrase? It's a riddle wrapped inside a mystery, inside an enigma. It's a vanity. And nothing more so 
than human life. Everything comes under the teacher's scrutiny. And everything is found wanting. And to prove his point, he sets out six claims about life. Let's just look at them briefly. Six claims about life. First of all, that life is boring. Verse 3. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? I think the basic problem for most people is not that life is tragic. Actually, if truth be told, a wee bit of tragedy now and again would be a welcome interruption from the routine. It would at least give us something to be excited about. The fact is that the basic problem of life is that it is composed of pointless drudgery. We're like those wee little hamsters on their cage just going round and round and round on their wee spinning wheels. So every day it's exactly the same, isn't it? You wake up, you have your shower, you dress, breakfast, kick the cat, kiss the wife, not the other way around. You get ready for work, you go to work, you come back home, you have your dinner, maybe some more work, then some TV, and then it's bed. So it's Monday, that's the day I go bowling. It's Tuesday, that's the day I go shopping. Wednesday, that's the day I visit my sister. And it's the same week after week after week. Most people could do their job in their sleep. I came across this quotation from one of the trade unions. Listen to this. By and large, people neither enjoy their work, nor do they enjoy travelling to and from it. Most jobs are repetitive, require little of any personal initiative, and for the most part, people are incapable of fulfilling anything like their full potential through them. That's from one of the trade unions. Life is boring. And life is fragile. Verse 4. Generations come and go, but the earth remains forever. Every baby should be delivered gift-wrapped with a sign on it saying, Fragile handle with care. A knock, a blow, a fall, and it's curtains. A car accident, train derailments, a plane crash. Even another war in Europe is now no longer unimaginable. So I wonder if we ever leave the house. Only, of course, the house is where most accidents actually take place. In verses 5 through to 7, our teacher paints a picture of the repetition, the predictability that life is built upon. Now you take the psalmist, for example, and he looks at the daily rising and setting of the sun, and he cries out in praise. Oh, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Our teacher, however, finds it all just one big yawn. Round and round our tiny planet goes spinning on its axis once every 24 hours, revolving around the sun once every 365 days. In verse 7, he points to the streams that flow into the sea, millions and millions of gallons pouring into the seas and oceans every day, but he says they're never filled. It's as if the ocean is a, a gigantic bathtub with the plug left out. Now, of course, we know, know, we know now, of course, that water evaporates and it's recycled at the rate of billions of tons a day. Then it goes to the atmosphere, only to descend again as rain. So actually, even though our ancient teacher didn't know the science, he actually gets it right. It's all recycled water. And isn't that true of so many people's lives? There's a line in that play, A Streetcar Called Desire, where Blanche Dubois says, I don't want realism. I want magic. 
we imagine that we can beat the boredom by moving on. So I'll change my job, I'll change my house, I'll change town, I'll even change partner. But it's not going to work. The same problems raised, the same old ugly heads, and the same sense of futility persists. Verse 8. All things are wearisome. More than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, or the ear its fill of hearing. Life is insatiable. The boredom, the monotony sets is often a wild goose chase. The chase for happiness. Oh, if only I had a better job. If only I had a more comfortable house. If only I had a more attractive wife or a more attentive husband. The fault lies in our circumstances. And if only they could be changed, then reality will change. Well, our teacher just torpedoes that with one missile. Verse 8. The eye never has enough of seeing, or the ear its fill of hearing. Life has an appetite that will never be satisfied. You can make all the changes in the world. It won't make any difference whatsoever. The grass is always greener on the other side, isn't it? Our prayers, if only our prayers were answered, and it's just around the corner. Get promotion, you can afford a bigger house, you can take a more exotic holiday. But if that was the solution to life, then the guys in advertising would be out of a job. The marketing industry relies on being able to convince us that whatever we have now is just not good enough. Yesterday's gadget is obsolete. And the clothes in your wardrobe are just so last year. Life is unchangeable. There is nothing new under the sun. We have such short memories. We think every problem is a new problem. And there is nothing in the past that we can learn from. And therefore, friends, we are doomed to repeat the mistakes our ancestors made. Life is insignificant. Verse 11. Now, if what I've just been saying has not yet ground you into the ground, then our teacher just finishes us off by pointing out that most of what happens in our lives is totally insignificant and will never be remembered by anyone. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. I love going into second-hand bookshops. It's a real passion of mine. And the thrill for me is just the chance of coming across something really special. Something rare. Something that's been out of print for a long time, and I've just been really longing to get my hands on it. And as I run my fingers quickly across hundreds and hundreds of volumes, all of them representing hours and hours of hard work, maybe a lifetime of research, someone's crowning achievement, and there they are on the shelves gathering dust. And their author's so proud of seeing their name in print, now totally forgotten. Isaac Watts captures it well, doesn't he? Time like an ever-rolling stream bears all her sons away. Well, maybe having heard all that, you are tempted to think, well, life is meaningless, isn't it? It sounds as if our professor thinks like that. But it's only just started. We haven't heard his conclusions yet. And his conclusions, as you would expect, come at the very end of the book. Let me read to you the closing verses of Ecclesiastes. After all his musings, 
Our teacher concludes in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. All he says about the weariness of work, the poverty of wealth, the wisdom of ignorance, it is only true if there is nothing more to life than what we can see and touch and taste and smell and hear. But what if there is more to life? What if there is more to life? And we've already come across as we phrase this in chapter 1, verses 3 and 9. That phrase, under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun. His pessimistic opinions are expressed from the view under the sun. From a human point of view. The human point of view. But is there another point of view? Is there a point of view from, as it were, above the sun? Is there anything above and beyond the sun that might have an influence on us or call, cause us to alter our perspective? Is there no other reality which would enable us to rise above that downward spiral? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. Because there is a God, a creator God. And to ignore him, to deny his existence is to condemn yourself to a life of chasing after the wind. Whatever it is you think may make you happy, whatever it is you think will bring you meaning, it will disappoint you. It will disappoint you. We read earlier on as well from Ephesians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul warns the Christians in Ephesus to avoid the futile thinking that characterized their old lives their pre-Christian lives. Futile thinking, he says, puts me at the centre of the universe. It allows me to use others for my own sexual gratification. It allows me to lie my way out of trouble. It allows me to hold on to grudges. Futile thinking. And it gets me nowhere. I'm forgetting that life is but a breath. I'm ignoring the reality of judgment. And to the Christians in Ephesus, Paul says, you did not come to know Christ that way. You did not come to know Christ that way. It is the reality of God's love for us demonstrated in Jesus Christ that gives life its substance. That gives life meaning. So, the Lord Jesus, now he was not afraid of hard work. But he linked our daily work to the work beyond work to doing the Father's will and trusting the Father's power. So he says in John 6 verses 27 and 29 do not labour for the food which perishes but for the food which endures to everlasting life. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Think about the Beatitudes. But Jesus tells us that there is actually a poverty that leads to riches. There is a mourning which will bring joy. There is a hungering and thirsting which is a blessing, not a curse. The hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There is a meekness which is not weakness. 
And actually to be persecuted for his sake is to be welcomed, not shunned. His death on the cross was not meaningless. It was not pointless. It was not an insignificant gesture. Everything we do in Christ and for Christ is storing up treasure for ourselves in heaven. And actually, God is doing a new thing in Christ. Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, tells us he is doing a new thing for us and with us and in us. We don't know for sure when Ecclesiastes was actually written. But I hope you're already beginning to appreciate that what it says is as relevant today as it ever was. Here is a book for those who are still falling for that lie that tells us that meaning and purpose and satisfaction are found alone in this world and what it has to offer. And if that's how you've been thinking, reading this book will give you a, a rude awakening. It's a book for those who still believe that lie. But it's also a book for those who are seeking to replace that lie with the truth. And the truth is there is a God. And the universe that we inhabit comes from his hand and is actually his gift to us. A gift that will be over all too soon. So stop chasing after the wind. Embrace life for what it is rather than what you think it might be. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else. Meaning Purpose, satisfaction will be added to you as well.